Welcome to Folklore on the Rocks. <laughs> Hi folks, thanks for joining us for our first episode. We're here to drink and talk all about lesser-known cryptids, monsters, and creatures from around the world, as well as the folklore surrounding them. Now, when we say lesser-known, we mean that it's not on the scale of Bigfoot, Nessie, or Chupacabra. Not that no one knows about them. We just want the other creatures to get some airtime, and we love learning about them. Yes, we do. Now, we mentioned earlier we would be doing some drinking, and that we have. Mm -hmm. Today, uh, it's kind of a concoction, a little bit of a mad scientist creation. Today's drink that I'm, I'm working on, it started with rum, but <laughs> went downhill fast. <laughs> In the best possible way. In the way. best possible way. It, it, so, rum plus... So, so, a generous helping of rum. What would you say? Three or four fingers or in this case? Enough. Yeah, we do, I would say enough. We don't do fingers of alcohol. We do we claws just, and tentacles. <laughs> yeah, I guess. We just pour. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, a so, pirate's amount of rum. Some, some rum and then enough tonic water to make it bubbly. And then a sip of that uh, revealed that it tastes just like medicine. So let's sweeten <laughs> it up some. Uh, did a splash of Coke and then looked through my cupboard and said, hey, look, we've got some grenadine. And thus a drink was born. Now you might think that's not very many ingredients and certainly not very exotic. That's because I just moved to a new place. And so I'm still stocking up my liquor cabinet. Mm -hmm. uh, expect some more interesting drinks to come. But also it's a good place to maybe. start for our little podcast. Here. Maybe, maybe different drinks. <laughs> It'll end up that we're just like, here's a beer. Here's a beer. <laughs> I did want to say, you don't know who we are yet. We should probably introduce ourselves. I suppose we should. I guess. You might want to know who we are. Yeah, so I'm Logan. I'm from, uh, so, well, I'm not sure how quite anonymous we want to be, but it's our podcast, so we'll choose. I'm from Salt Lake City, Utah. <laughs> uh, born and raised, but I, uh, I love to travel. I, I've gotten the chance to go around the world traveling with a small circus and stunt show, kind of ringmastering and announcing for them. And, uh, well, growing up in, in Utah, you get uh, an idea for, wow, maybe there's a lot of different ways to see the world. Maybe there's a lot of different ways to do things other than what's immediately around us. And so traveling has really given me a chance to really explore that. I think you do have to travel to see that, especially from Utah with it being so culturally monotone i guess yeah yes a lot of it, it i mean it, it, not all of it for sure there, like, it certainly has some pockets of, mm -hmm. of, of urban variation but uh a lot of it uh, from from my own experience in utah has been kind of one mm -hmm. note and pretty consistent and yes. I was, i'm very lucky to have that as an option but uh, it's been a good kind of base from which to go out and explore Absolutely. other things as well i definitely get that yeah and um as far as uh, mythology ties into this, what are my credentials there? Uh, I'm just a huge research nerd. Uh, <laughs> one of my favorite books uh, is a book of Norse mythology that uh, was given to me by, by my grandmother, who was a librarian. And she always got me looking into these books that weren't necessarily aimed at, at children, but they were stories of, of myths and, and creatures and monsters and and then uh, I grew up with a, with a father who's a sculptor, and so I grew up around statues and gargoyles and all of these things and wondered what went into their creation. And then on top of it, I was around just at the right time to be really into both the Ghostbusters and dinosaurs. So, <laughs> And you still are. Yeah, so Let's from that, real. you mash all that together, <laughs> uh, you get uh, this guy right here who makes a, a pretty, pretty solid cocktail. <laughs> 
And what did we decide it was? The kiss of the spider woman? The kiss of the spider woman. Yeah, it is saccharine sweet and ultra deadly. Uh, and, and grenadine looks like, you know. Yeah, a little. Really clear, maybe yeah, too. Like too, blood that's had, had some <laughs> kind of thinning blood. agent I don't know. applied to it. So it flows more easily. Venom. There we go. Venom added. Yeah. yeah. Perfect. That's something like that. I don't know. Um, and I'm Lindsay. Uh, I also live in Salt Lake. How I really got into mythology, I think, is because I always had a really, really active imagination as a kid, and I still do. I think that I read a book of mythology as an assignment way back in elementary sometime. Uh They gave us, like, coloring sheets, and they had different myths from around the world, like a Chinese creation myth and Icarus and Daedalus and stuff like that. So during this assignment, I'm like, these are really cool stories about places I'd never heard of before. Mm-hmm. I didn't know anything about. And that kind of progressed as I got more into sci-fi and fantasy books and read a whole lot more. Right, Reading was kind of a thing. Still is. And then I moved on to college where I didn't really know what I wanted to do, which I know is... Something that happens for um, yeah, I'm sure. A it, lot I'm sure, it never happens. It's a purely singular. <laughs> no, event everyone to you. knows exactly yeah. what they want to do, right? So, my idea for figuring out what the hell it is I actually wanted to study in college was to sit down with the course catalog and and read through each entry of of courses and mm-hmm. kind of just mark down what sounded interesting, right? And I got to the end of that and. <laughs> everything was anthropology. So there we go. There's my major, right? Um, so I moved on and learned a whole lot more about cultural anthropology. It kind of changed my view on the world to from, from very shuttered and closed, which I think is a product of the environment we grew up in, mm-hmm. to panoramic. And I would never be able to go back to that original point of view I had in the world. And I appreciate that so much. I think that I... I've become a much more open-minded person from that. I think that I've learned so much from that. Um, and I have such a healthy respect for other cultures from around the world. And it's as interesting as the things that make us different are. It's anthropology that kind of gives me that perspective of, okay, we are all different, but how are we all the same too? And I think that that's the thing that we're really going to explore in this show, uh, because we're we're going to be doing a creature feature, which we'll be doing this week, and then the, n- the subsequent week we'll be doing folktales from that region. This week our creatures from Japan, so next week we'll be doing Japanese folktales, and I think that will just kind of give this show another dimension, make it a little bit more interesting and more folklore based, mm-hmm. while still <laughs> exploring these awesome creatures, right? Yeah. And it, it also is important to note that we are going to try our best to look at this with kind of an open mind, um, uh, not necessarily believing everything that we read in there, but we're not coming at it from the perspective of skeptics. Although we may play devil's advocate at some point. Absolutely, because yeah. that's just fun. But yeah, we, we want to start off by saying we acknowledge that as a species, we are always learning and discovering, and that's one of the greater experiences you can have as a human being so to learn what you thought was one way is actually something totally different that's really cool so we're coming at this from the angle of a let's let's try to think this out let's look at the pieces that didn't get recorded and let's look Mm -hmm. at what could this have possibly been 
because that's just a little bit more interesting way to think about a story than saying, oh, well, we know better now. Yeah. I mean, who's, there's so much we don't know. Right? Absolutely. It could be true. It could easily not be true. We'll apply logic where we need to, and we'll apply outside influences of what happened during that time period in that place to that this myth um, or creature or legend came about. And I mean, that, that has a lot of bearing on how it progressed to the time we are now and how we know about it. We're going to try to explore uh, as many angles as we can with these. You said we're going to start with something from Japan. So we are. Lindsay, yeah. you excited? You ready to go with this? Yeah, let's just jump right in. All right. Um, um, it's a yokai from Japan. So first, I kind of want to talk about what a yokai is. That's a good start. Yeah, I know uh, a lot of people do know what yokai are, um, especially if you've done any research into Japanese mythology oh, or at yeah, all. Yeah, right? yeah. Uh, the kind of Not everyone has. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll just kind of give a cursory idea of it. Basically, yokai, it's essentially a broad like, catch-all term for a very wide variety of supernatural creatures and phenomena in Japanese mm-hmm. folklore. So kind of like spirits, monsters, demons, goblins, ghosts. The word can be translated to basically any of those. All kinds of cool mm-hmm. stuff. Okay. Um, it's, it's kind of become more of a colloquialism. We'll talk about that in a minute. But if you're familiar with that culture, uh, whether... It's general interest or anime or university classes. I, I do feel like, uh, let's just get it right out there right in the open. Raise your hand if you've ever seen an anime. Yeah, okay, I see you out there. Not me. Oh, wait. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> but that's that's something that should be addressed. Um, Eastern culture is really coming into the West a lot mm-hmm. more than it ever has. And it's really very interesting. Oh, it's super interesting. The idea that a cartoon isn't explicitly for a child. Wait, Adventure Time's for kids? Oh, uh, wait. No, huh? it's not. <laughs> I freaking love that show. So off topic. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, if you're if you're coming at this saying, "Oh, yokai, I know that from this anime," please. Uh, That's true. Yeah. Do. Mm-hmm. Yep. And if you got an anime to recommend to us, toss it our way. We can't guarantee we'll enjoy it, but. Hey, It'll be Logan watching it. Yeah, probably. I'm so selective with anything that's animated, but there is some really great stuff out there. Mm-hmm. I'm more of a comic graphic novel than... Oh, well, then wa- you can get the hell out right now. Well, it, yeah, too bad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, sorry to interrupt. All right, you okay. <laughs> anyway, so if you have any experience with those, you probably know what yokai are, like we talked about. The folklore with yokai dates back to at least the 8th century, in the Heian period, which is like 794 to 1185-ish. Mm-hmm. Um, the oldest recorded histories that we have for that period. So basically, they go back to when writing started to happen in Japan. Right? Yeah. So they go back further, definitely. Uh, but they, they were really expanded upon during the Edo period, uh, which is kind of Japan's golden age of like art and culture. And that was like in the 1600s to 1888. Mm-hmm. And that's when everything we know really now kind of got cemented. Okay. Basically. Especially by artists like Toriyama Se- uh, Seikon. Seikon? I don't know. I'm going to slaughter a whole lot of words today, and I hope that you don't hate me. So, yeah, sorry I- about it. So, Yukai, they dipped in popularity in the Meiji period, which is 1868 to 1912. Um, they kind of became like a... Oh, you believe in those supernatural creatures, please. Yeah, it was, It was. Mm-hmm. if I'm not mistaken, kind of the beginning of Western influence into yeah. the East. And a lot of it superstitious was... Superstitious belief wasn't really 
mm-hmm. in vogue at that point yes. in Japan. And so it kind of dipped, and it was due to the attitude that they, like I said, were superstitious, and they were embarrassing, and there was a lot of wars going on. It's kind of hard to be like, oh, here's this supernatural creature. Let's talk about it. Let's revel in it and write stories about it when everyone around you is dying. And that's uh, that's something to kind of remember. As we explore stories going forward, often they will occur at times of peace uh, when people don't have something a little bit yeah, more grounded. culture is yeah. at, its, you know, when at the, the forefront, yeah, when, when the, is what I'm thinking. When there's time to, to think about... Uh, oh, that goat in the field seems awfully strange. But right? I, yeah. Uh, otherwise, oh, my neighbor's trying to murder me. Yeah, otherwise there's, there's just bigger issues. Yeah. <laughs> but they obviously they've become popular again in recent years uh, through anime and manga. And specifically, they were starting up again with the work of Shigeru Mizuku. He was a prolific manga writer, I think. I'm pretty sure that's what it was. Yeah. My research. He, he kind of is the father of that, really. He kind of brought it up and it became super popular from his works again, which was really cool. That one guy is kind of the catalyst for starting that up again and kind of is why we have all of the stuff that we have today, which is really neat. So, Yokai, the creatures kind of range from evil to mischievous to benevolence, mm-hmm. and there's a huge range of shapes and sizes, too. Some look like humans, some look like hybrids of other animals, some kind of shapeshift between both. And there's, like, specific names for each of these classes of, of yokai and everything, but we, we won't go that far into it. I'll put some links in our show notes, and you can do more research into that yourselves if you'd like. Uh, there's a couple really great books that I used in my research for this, and they talk in exhaustive length about the different classes of yokai. What are just some that that we may have heard of? Like, a, <laughs> um, for yeah. example, um, in the third Ninja Turtles movie, <laughs> the, the the Ninja Turtles were mistaken for turtle demons or kappas. Mm-hmm. Are, are those yokai? Kappas are yokai. Yes. Okay. Yes, they are. In uh, Dungeons and Dragons, they have the bird people who can no longer fly, the kenku. Tengu? Kengu. Kenku. Oh, maybe it's that different. Well, okay. Uh, but yes, they, they are also yokai. Okay, mm-hmm. also okay. Yep. Um, and there's inanimate objects that are also yokai. There's there's a whole other branch of like oni, which are demons, and some, I can't remember the term for the, like the really, really, the creepy ones, those creepy like Japanese girl ghosts that we're all terrified of. Those are one, mm-hmm. but they're like a different branch. I can't remember exactly. I don't have it in my notes, so I'm not going to talk about it, Logan. Oh, oh you're not going <laughs> to? <laughs> because I don't want to say something wrong, sorry. Um, but we are going to talk about the linguistics of yokai, because I'm a linguistics nerd. So, <laughs> basically, the usage of the term yokai, it's pretty recent. They kind of first use as kind of a catch-all term by Yanagita Kunio in the early 1900s. Um, before they were commonly known as yokai, they were referred to as mononoke. There's no great direct translation of it, but it basically means the essence of something that is mysterious or spooky. Mm-hmm. Um, you're probably familiar with the term mononoke. Yeah, it's a name I may have heard once or twice. Yeah, yeah. Um, Princess Mononoke is a great movie. If you haven't seen it, you definitely should. Give it a shot, people. Yeah. You'll like it. You definitely should. But there are... A lot of different kinds of yokai, like we were talking about. 
the one that we're specifically concerned with today, it's often called bakemono, kind of by adults in casual conversation, and even sometimes in academia, which I thought was interesting, or obake, which is often used by children. Mm-hmm. So they all kind of mean the same thing um, as yokai does. Uh, obake means a thing that changes. So it refers to a state of transformation or ship ship shifting. Ship shifting. Oh, yes. It's a new thing. It's where you shape shift into a ship. Oh, it's much less useful. Uh, (laughs) Very much so. Unless you happen to be, uh, well, a near body of water, then useful. Or or out in space. Yeah. Yeah, be cool. cool. We keep an open mind to our definition. It's a new thing. You heard it here first. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Transformation or shape shifting. Um, Or it means ghost, but it basically. It usually refers to, uh, like, living things. Mm -hmm. And if you lost track of this, we're talking about obake and bakemono. Same thing. Used by different people. Got it. Things what change. Yeah? Yeah. Okay. Things what change. (laughs) When it's referring to living things or shape-shifting things or ship-shifting things, um, basically, it's generally from animal to human back to animal again. Okay. Or if you're a boat... Boat to human or boat. So, right. from the through, it's not really a thing, by the way. Through the lens of of what some of the more casual monster appreciators might might find in the myth of, say, like the werewolf from like a werewolf movie. If you were to capture one of these creatures and it goes to its natural form, uh, you're saying in many cases its natural form is that of an animal. Well, that depends on werewolf lore. Okay, <laughs> because it depends on the region, right? Mm-hmm. I didn't know you know a lot about werewolves because you basically are a werewolf. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but in some, the werewolf is the natural form. The wolf is the natural form. Mm-hmm. In some, the human is the natural form and it's cursed. You know, it just kind of depends. Sure. But for, for, for the this, yokai. For this, the yokai, they are not human. They are gotcha. creatures that are able to look like humans. Okay. so they're... And then shift back to their actual form humanity is their disguise it is an affectation it's how they entrap victims okay so basically with yokai all of the terms that we talked about obake mononoke bakemono they're all kind of used as kind of how we would use the word monster Uh. how the how the word monster means a lot of different things right and it's even used outside of shape-shifting creatures like we talked about earlier, there's different types, like the inanimate object ones or ones that always look like humans. But it's a descriptor. It's something extremely large, basically. To refer to any okai, it can even be used for the word like something extremely large. And I'm pretty sure that that's for like obake and bakemono. They use it as a ghost, but they also mean it when they're talking about something really big or monstrous kind of like we would say that thing is so monstrously huge you know mm-hmm. they would say it in that kind of term so um, a really amazing resource for kind of understanding the nuances of yokai is a book that i used majorly for this it's called the book of yokai and it's by michael david foster or sorry michael dylan foster a professor of folklore at the university of california davis Three names, one man, the authority on yokai. <laughs> and yes, he does happen to be a white guy, <laughs> but he does know his shit. He okay. knows what he's talking about. He's got a PhD from Stanford. His work is focused on Japan specifically. He had a Fulbright fellowship in Japan twice, 
and he wrote the book while he was living in Japan. Oh. Um, and it was published in like 2015, so it's not he super seems outdated. Cool. He seems like yeah. a pretty badass dude that I would totally want to hang out with. Yeah, if he ever comes uh, to Utah, drinks on me. Come on. <laughs> yeah, Dr. Foster, come on. <laughs> Offers on the table. <laughs> so for the example of monstrous, he kind of used how he would say, look at that monster pumpkin. That's what he said in the oh, book. So okay, perfect. It means something big, too, mm-hmm. right? The further subcategories that we talked about, creatures who true forms are animals, plants, inanimate objects, ghosts, or demons. Occasionally, in common usage, the terms bakimono and abake are synonymous with yokai. So, yokai is mostly used, mm-hmm. but they do occasionally use those two other terms as well. So, All right. We're done talking about yokai as a generality we've, right we've now. We've covered... Uh, what, we have moved on. From as that. a word, we all know what yokai is when you say it. All right. The word. The word. We're now we're moving on to yokai street. Yokai street. Yokai oh. street. So, in my research, I came up across a couple of really cool articles about a place called yokai street mm-hmm. in Japan. It's small. It's like 400 meters, which is about 1,300 feet. Um, or like a quarter of a mile. So not very big. Um, and it's a street in Kyoto called Ichi Jodori. Ichi Jodori. Something like that. And it celebrates yokai from Japanese legend. Um, the owners of the businesses on this street have created statues of yokai and they place them in front of their stores. Uh, there's like 30-ish or so. Are they scary? Are they... It depends. Okay. Um, some are sculpted. Some are made up of, like, clothing and toys. They kind of just made, made them. They created the creatures. And are they kind of the cartoonification of these yokai? Uh, they're just representation. Okay. So some are probably cartoonish. Some are probably a little bit scarier. It, it kind of seems like a tourist grab a little bit at first. But the interesting thing is it's really not. Uh-huh. It's more of a local celebration than anything. Um, these are really small businesses that they really cater to their local community. Um, they're not really souvenir shops, though you can buy stuff like that there. And they do have a few celebrations where you can go buy. Um, they have like seasonal events in September and October. Uh, one specifically is called the Yokai Parade, mm-hmm. where like hundreds of people dress up as different monsters and yokai. And they parade through the streets in the evening, kind of like how we have Halloween celebrations. Yeah. And they, they have a specific thing on, they have celebrations on this street. Tons of people show up. It might be a really fun thing to do as a tourist if you're there mm-hmm. or around September, October. Go check this street Very out. Cool. It'd be really fun. And if you go, you you I think you might see a side of Japan that not a lot of tourists see. The yokai that they have there are just kind of a fun, quirky nod to Japanese folklore. Kind of something that they celebrate there. Mm-hmm. And it sets them apart. They're Yokai Street when their name isn't really Yokai Street, you know. So all all of the shop owners just kind of do their thing and contribute, and everybody is part of something. And it's just it's just really fun. Yeah, I just like that idea of the community and celebrating your own personal folklore of your country. You know, another event they have there is a flea market called the Monster Market or Mononoke Ichi. And it's on the weekend. I don't know which weekends they have a site where you can find out. Uh-huh. Um, and they sell like monster themed goods, which I think is really fun. Uh, some examples that I saw were like earrings shaped like eyeballs <laughs> or rice wine with spooky art labels uh, or like plush versions of yokai, which would be adorable. 
they do have an official website that I'll stick in the show notes. And it has a map of the street and it lists the different stores and the merchandise they sell, which is really cool. Mm-hmm. Especially when you're halfway across the world, you can actually find out more about it. Now, is this flea market only at certain times or have they committed so. to the yokai aesthetic? Well, they've committed always. Uh-huh. They have the yokai in front of their stores, but the, the monster flea market is... Um, certain weekends of the year. And I'm pretty sure they have a calendar on their site, so you mm-hmm. can check that out and see if it coincides with your... So it's definitely a place to visit if mm-hmm. if you find your way if there. If you're in Kyoto. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's pretty easy to find directions to Yokai Street. You can even just Google Yokai Street and it'll show up. Um, but I will include the coordinates in our show notes, so it's easy to find. And I do have like a screen grab that I took from Google Earth. And I'll just stick that on our website, too, if I can figure out how to do that. Sounds good. We'll see. Folklore on the Rocks, your one-stop shop for drink recommendations, monster folklore myths, as well as travel advice. <laughs> Maybe not good travel advice. <laughs> not, not great travel <laughs> advice. But. Okay. So, before we get into talking about the creature, um, let's talk about the real-life spider that serves as an inspiration for them. Oh, so these, uh, so the Jorogumo is a real thing one might find. Basically, yes. In one way or kind another. Of. Okay. So there is a spider in Japan, um, except in Hokkaido, which is the second largest northernmost major island in mm-hmm. Japan. Um, so it's not, they're not on that island at all. Um, and it's known as the Joro spider. Okay. Thus Jorogumo, right? Joro. Got it. Cool. Uh, scientific name is. Nephila clavada. If you look that up, it'll bring up the Jorah spider. They're also found in like Korea, Taiwan, China, and even recently in North America. Really? Yeah. So non-native species. Get- yes. Specifically in Georgia, in the US. I did find a report of uh, like Mexico, near Mexico City. But the Georgia ones were a big thing for a little while. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the idea is that they came over in some shipment or something. Mm-hmm. And now they've kind of taken over a lot of yeah the area of spiders Georgia. spiders often do that yes um, they do um but it was like a big deal because i mean they came you know quite a ways over yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a long trip for long, a little spider so they're in north america too cool they belong to the golden orb web spider genus because their spider webs are circular mm-hmm. and they're golden they have this like this yellowish tint to them mm-hmm. instead of just the normal like white that you would see with normal spider webs. Okay. So they're rounded and they're yellow. And there's specific genus of spiders that have this and they belong to it. Do you know what makes the yellow in there? Something. Uh, listeners, if any of you know <laughs> what is going to put that yellow in there, is it sulfur? Is it, cul- is it copper? <laughs> what uh, any uh, en- entomologists, there we go. You etymologists can hang out. And Not entomology. Etymology. No, etymology is Ent- names. Yeah, entomology like which one is, is the bugs. one that's words? It has, I always remember it as... Spider freak. If it sounds like ant, yeah. then it's a bug. <laughs> there we go. Got it. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. Entomologists, <laughs> we're calling on you. Etymologists, uh, hang out. I'm sure we'll, we'll want need you too. Your, uh, your expertise as well. Definitely. All right. So, what makes the golden orb weaver spiders gold? Of one of those fine mysteries. If anyone else wants to take a crack at that mystery, we'd be listening Just as let well. Let us know. All we'll right. We'll retweet you or something. I don't know. They are also known as banana spiders, uh, but there are three different kinds of banana spiders. So it may not be the one that you've heard of. There's the Hawaiian garden spider that's a banana spider. They are in the islands in the West Pacific Ocean. 
and the Brazilian wandering spider, which is probably what you've heard of. Um, and it's in Brazil, South and Central America. That one, its venom can kill a human. Yes. So its bites are actually quite rare. And there's a super effective anti-venom if you get it treated quickly. So I, I remember that one very that. specifically from Metal Gear Solid 3. <laughs> <laughs> so, so there are three kinds of banana spiders. This is one. It's not the one you probably know of as mm-hmm. a banana spider. Something really cool about these guys are the females are really large. They're up to like 7.6 to 10 centimeters, or for us stupid Americans, three to four inches uh-huh. in their leg span, basically as big as your hands, right? Whoa. So they're big ass spiders. And sometimes they're four times larger than the males, which is sexual dimorphism. That is some sexual dimorphism yes, right it there. Is. I mean, there's more significant cases, <laughs> but this is definitely one of them. Uh, a good example of mm-hmm. sexual dimorphism. Uh, some are large enough to catch and eat small birds. I could do that, but I don't want to. <laughs> well, you're a lot bigger than four <laughs> inches tall. So impress me then. Logan. Oh, okay. Sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> um, the males are kind of like a plain brown, but the females are actually really colorful. And there's a Nat Geo article that I read um, that says it way better and more poetically than I ever could. Um, so, quote, adult female and clavita are spectacular sights with striped legs and abdomens that appear as though they've been dipped in a pool of swirling yellow, red, and black paint. Unquote. Wow. Isn't that poetic? Very. I freaking love that, Geo. They know what's up. They sure do. They do. Once upon a time, I wanted to be a writer for them, but, uh, well, other things came up. You still have lots of life left. Lots of time. You can do it. Okay, so something you might want to know, mm-hmm. because there are a lot of people that are arachnophobes, and some that are just a little bit afraid of spiders, right? So if you are bitten by this spider, will merely cause localized pain. The bite kind of feels like a bee sting. And you may experience some redness and blistering, but it's usually going to resolve within 24 hours. Okay. So, no big. These guys yeah. aren't going to kill you. Look pretty, pretty exotic. Gorgeous, yeah. big, a little scary if you're afraid of spiders. And really not going to hurt you more than like a mosquito bite or a bee sting would. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very rare for people to be allergic. So the only time they're really life-threatening is if you are allergic to their venom. But it's much more rare than if it's like a bee sting. Yeah. Right? So the, their strength of venom is not their claim to fame. But they do get a cool story that, uh, yes, they do. that comes from them. Yes, they do. Just one more little tidbit about them. Their mm-hmm. webs, they spin really large webs. They're usually often around a yard, so oh. like three feet in diameter, mm-hmm. which is pretty big. Something you probably don't want to walk into. Yeah, I'd, if I can avoid it. Not so fun. Okay, so now on to the story. On to the story, right? Um, the Jorogumo is an arachnid, arachnid yokai with the ability to shapeshift into a beautiful, seductive woman. Okay. Um, apparently, the kanji for jo- Jorogumo translates to entangling newlywed woman, uh, or binding bride, or woman spider. But according to yokai.com, the characters were added to cover up the original meaning, which was whore spider. Hmm. Um, that has some interesting connotations. I think we'll explore that a little bit more later on in the episode. Sure. But the Jorogumo starts to appear in the Edo period literature. Like we talked about earlier, that's about the 1600s to the 1800s. 
Uh, but it's likely that the idea of the Jorokumo already existed in the preceding period. Uh, the term Joro refers to a lady in waiting, and Joro, I don't know if I have these inflections right, but you know, whatever, um, is prostitute. Oh. So it's kind of an interesting lady in waiting or prostitute. Yeah, very similar. Depending on the dash above which O. <laughs> mm-hmm. Just kind of, kind of interesting uh, linguistic tidbit. <laughs> um, but during the Muromachi period, which is like 1300s to 1500s, the former, so the Joro, referred to both. Okay. It is suggested that the image of a prostitute may be behind the creation of a female shape-shifting spider. Oh. And like I said, we will get into that more later because it yeah, is interesting. I'm, I'm excited to kind of break that open a little yeah. bit. Um, okay. So... Here's kind of the basics okay. of Jorgumon. Yeah, the, the basic Dungeons and Dragons uh, monster manual. What you need to know. Entry. Yes. Uh, Joraguma. What is it? And what do, what, you wh- open your guidebook and read. Yeah. This is what it says. Not literally, but no. basically. <laughs> so according to legend, a female Jorah spider gains magical abilities and grows to about the size of a cow. That's a big ass spider. Mm-hmm. Um, and starts to prey on humans when it turns about 400 years old. Or when it turns 400 years old. Okay. Like, bam. So it lives as a spider until then. It just kind of spiders around. Which is interesting because their lifespan is less than a year. (laughs) Yeah. For the actual spider. Already an exceptional spider. Yeah. Okay. Like, they pass the winter as eggs. They hatch in the spring. And then they return lay eggs, like, between 400 and 1,500 eggs in one sack. Um, And then they die in, like, late autumn, early winter. That's our lifespan. Just so, had a flashback to all of Charlotte's Web and oh God, getting no, choked no, up. We are not going no. there. <laughs> I can't deal with that. Yeah. But yeah, like for them to live 400 years when they don't even live a year, mm-hmm. it's kind of interesting. Uh, they are solitary, generally live in caves, forests, empty houses, uh, shacks in like rural areas or cities. Um, many sources say that they often live by water, mm-hmm. especially waterfalls. Surrounded by her young, usually. The Jorogumo is intelligent and cold with no empathy for humans. They merely see them as food. Yeah, it's that utterly alien perspective. Mm -hmm, Exactly. They are not human. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They may look it, but they are not. They usually prey on young, handsome men that are seeking love. People like Logan. Say what? Specifically that are samurais, kind of like Logan. No way. (laughs) (laughs) But basically. But basically. But basically. That'd be a, it'd be a good start. Okay. <laughs> um, they lure victims into their shack using their beautiful female form and their skill at playing a biwa, which is a short-necked fretted lute. Some sources say that they're skilled in every stringed instrument. Ah, but only the stringed ones. Yes. Okay. I think Getting it has something with to do theme. with what women learned how to play. Oh, okay. Yeah, that, that makes sense too. Yeah, like you had skills in, in in music that made you valuable. Okay. Right? Not like High if, society. I'm, if I'm a shape-shifting elephant creature, then I know the horn section. Ex- exactly. Okay. <laughs> Trumpets all around. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, in some tales, they have them serving tea or sake. While, and while the men are distracted by all the music and the conversation... Uh, they bind their victims' feet with spider silk, which is extremely strong, and they store them for feeding. Uh, their venom will slowly weaken the victim day by day, letting them enjoy the long and painful process of his death. Mm-hmm. 
Other tales speak of Ajoraguma draining men's energy by making them fall in love with her. Mm. So, interesting aspect there. Going for the long con yeah, there. Basically. So, a few facts. Even when in human form, her reflection will show a giant spider. Mm-hmm. So, maybe carry around a mirror. They cannot be killed by any kind of poison. They also control other lesser spiders, even fire-breathing spiders. Ooh. Which is apparently a thing in Japanese folklore. <laughs> um, and they employ them to burn down the houses of those that grow suspicious of them. Mm. They can operate like this for many years, even in the middle of a city, while hundreds and hundreds of skeletons accumulate in their houses. Uh, occasionally, they appear... Okay, so if you're an arachnophobe, you may want to skip ahead a, Just take, a little bit. Just t- take a break. Uh, yeah. We'll put a show note when you can come back. Uh, uh, maybe not. Maybe not. Just we'll skip like forget. 15 or 30 seconds. Yeah, but you've been warned. <laughs> yes, duly warned. Okay, so occasionally... They appear carrying what seems to be a baby, but is actually an egg sac that will burst open and thousands of tiny spiderlings will devour the victim. Oh, man. It's a little creepy. Surprise. (laughs) No. I just, it's just that horrible image just being covered in tiny. No, I'm good. I'm good. I'm not even scared of spiders, Uh, which is good because researching this. I look at a lot of pictures of spiders. Yeah, you, you gotta have to kind of put yourself in whatever gear it takes to get through that. Yeah. If we do a shark monster, it's all you. Deal. <laughs> Unless you want that anyway. <laughs> okay, so drawings often depict Ajoragumo as a half woman, half spider, but they're usually one or the other, actually. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, they shapeshift, but they don't shapeshift between, like, they're either a spider or a woman. They're not. Half woman, half spider. Not like, but the, it makes sense in a drawing to actually like see the essence of what they are as a half and half thing. Sure. Did did she have any supernatural markings? Uh, like, for example, woman but cast a spidery shadow or something like that. Well, the reflection. The reflection. That's right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Cool. So, but not, no physical not representation. No, maybe. Yeah. yeah. I, I didn't see anything about it, but maybe. Yeah. If the uh, reflection does, I would maybe think that their shadow does, but. I don't know. Yeah, maybe maybe whatever she clothes surface are also mystical. yeah whatever whatever clothes she wears they've got to have some kind of aspect alluding to a spidery nature probably that know. seems yeah costume designers out there send us some drawings yeah that'd be cool yeah be really cool <laughs> but you're saying they never go a, in a hybrid form like a yeah they're like, one or the other okay so picturing like a, the drow. Uh, driders. They have a spider body, but kind of a centaur arrangement of a humanoid, in this case, mm-hmm. a dark elf form on top. Yeah, and that's what they look like in all of the drawings mm-hmm. of Jorgamos. But in actual myth, they're either they're- a woman or they're a spider. Gotcha. A big ass spider, like the size of a cow, but one or the other. Very good. Okay. Um. So the only known way to defeat one, or at least like prevent it from attacking you, is to recite sutras, which are like scriptures to them, although it only forces their true form to be revealed and makes their silk disappear. So you can recite those sutras, and she changes suddenly back into a giant spider. And generally will like run away because she's now a giant spider, and you probably freaked her out, I don't know. Yeah. And like I said, it makes their silk disappear, so it kind of gets rid of their main weapon, Okay. To kind of to kind of tie you down, I guess you know that kind of thing. So that's kind of 
a general overview of the Jorgumo. Mm-hmm. I do have a few tales of the Jorogumo. Okay. Which I think will be a good illustration of the differences between... So kind of case studies yeah, of the Jorogumo. Like they're all the different places that you heard about the Jorogumo. They're different areas of Japan. And as, as we know with folklore, everything differs with the area because it's the, kind of the telephone game thing. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's told... It and gets repeated. It gets changed. Absolutely, yeah. Things kind of morph. You know? as, as external influences mm-hmm. change a story or as the they're teller used, tells the story yeah, exactly. for a different purpose. Yeah. Or they're used to explain specific events that happens, tall tales told by someone, you know, that kind of thing. So we're going to go through a handful of those. Yeah. Sorry if they're too many. Eh. You're just going to have to deal. Um, the first tale. In the city of Izu Shizuoka Prefecture in Japan, uh, Jorogumo is known as the Mistress of Joran Falls, which is a waterfall located in the Yukushima district. Okay, so we're back to a waterfall and yep, a woman. waterfall okay. area, yep. According to legend, a man was resting at the bottom of the waterfall when his feet were suddenly bound by a massive amount of spider threads. To free himself, he cut the threads and tied them to a tree stump. Mm-hmm which was then pulled from the ground and into the water. After this incident, the villagers got scared and they stopped going to the waterfall. But one day, a logger slash woodsman, depends on the tale, uh, from out of town started cutting wood in the area and not being aware of the story, uh, he accidentally dropped his axe in the water. I'm not exactly sure how that happens, but... It's a heavy axe. Not uh, my story. Maybe he's been drinking... Throwed it a little. Yeah. Threw it a little too... Too big I don't know. Yeah. Um, and he dove into the water to find it. A beautiful woman appeared and returned the axe that asked him to never tell anyone about her. He kept the promise until one day he was drunk. Typical. As one does tend to be. Yeah. <laughs> he finally told the secret after feeling anxious about keeping it and he was relieved. Then he fell into a deep sleep and never woke again. In another version, he was pulled outside by an invisible string as soon as he told the secret and they found his corpse floating in the falls the next day. Oh, no. So, let that be a lesson. Yeah. Don't let your axe fall in the water. Or Exactly. If it, or if it does go in the water. Or maybe don't tell take, the secret you're not supposed to know. That's, oh, that's the part I was missing. Oh, Because gotcha. an angry spider woman might kill you. I don't know. Okay. So, another variation of the tale is this. Mm. The logger falls in love with the Jorogumo. In woman form, obviously. And visits the waterfall every day to see her. As time goes on, he gets weaker and weaker. A monk, uh, an Osho, or a high-ranking Buddhist priest from a nearby temple, thinks that the logger has been ensnared by the spider. So the monk and the logger go to the waterfall together, where the monk reads a Buddhist sutra aloud. Mm -hmm. While he's reading it, spider threads emerge from the water and attempt to snatch the logger, but the monk shouts the sutra and the threads disappear. The logger finally understands that the woman is a spider, but he can't shake his love for her, which I find a little bit creepy. Yeah. But, you know, to it's, each not, it's not up to me. Yeah, okay. Yeah. He then asks uh, Tengu, and we'll talk about him uh, some other time and his various incarnations. There's a couple different versions of the Tengu. I, I've, That'll I've be heard the name. Episode. I can conjure Somewhere some visuals. Uh, <laughs> well, well, one's like a. A woodland, like a woodland spirit, uh, and with the, the guy with the long nose, 
Uh, he fought in one of the Tekken tournaments. God. There we are. We know everything because of video games and anime. Yes. <laughs> um, so we'll talk more about him in another mm-hmm. future episode. We'll do a whole thing on him, I'm sure. But he asks the Tengu for permission to marry her. But the Tengu refuses, as this kind of love is forbidden. Oh. Shocking. The logger ran back to the waterfall and was caught by silk threads falling into the water and never surfacing again. Oh, lost to the ages of history. Because she's a monster and not a human. Do not trust Not capable of loving him back. Yeah, that again, back to that uh, otherworldly alien uh, humans are prey, not friends kind of thing. Don't care about you, bro. Mm. That's what it is. It's a hard pill to swallow. (laughs) Okay, so third one. Uh, there are many versions of this tale, or of the logger tale. Uh, but another notable one is from uh, Saidan, which is the capital of Miyagi Prefecture in Japan. So in this version, after the stump is pulled into the pond, the logger, or some versions say that it's like a fisherman, hears a voice saying, how clever, how clever, mm-hmm. or clever, clever. Uh, not sure which, but in Japanese, it's kashkoi, kashkoi. Uh, because of this, the area became came to be called Kashkobuchi, which translates to Clever Abyss. Clever Abyss. Clever Abyss. I like In it. In this area, the Jorogumo is worshipped as a goddess who protects people from drowning and warding off water disasters. Hmm. And there's a monument and a small tori, which is like a, like a small Japanese gate thingy that's f- usually found at the entrance or within a Shinto shrine. Mm-hmm. Um, and it marks the transition from the mundane to the sacred. Okay. Which is pretty cool. Both the monument and the Tori are still actually standing at that location. Uh, the Tori is engraved with, oh, forgive me, Myoho Komonore. Okay. Well, which, according to somebody on Reddit that I asked, who I trust implicitly, because it's Reddit. Reddit, yeah. Um, and I do trust them far more than Google Translate, but that kind of goes without <laughs> saying. Uh, but it means either spirit of the marvelous spider or spirit of the spider with the most excellent methods. Both are good. Okay. Fancy uh, pants, yeah. I know. Um, I think that I found where it's located, but since it's in Japanese, I can't be absolutely sure. I used uh, or I used the kanji for Kashkobuchi to actually search for the location mm. and uh this is what came up so i'm like 90 percent sure that it's correct uh the coordinates are going to be in our show notes and i have some photos from somebody's blog i'll put the link there too there's a screenshot from google earth and they're all going to be on our website oh so it's pretty cool like i'm pretty sure i found exactly where this shrine is which is pretty awesome <laughs> i'm kind of a sleuthy nerd when it comes to things I think, like that. Yeah, that's a skill set you bring to but this. But if we it's... talk about a specific place, like I want to try to find it, right? To- totally, yeah. Exactly, because if you're going to go there, I want you to have the coordinates to be able to actually go there because people are far more well-traveled than either of us are. Well, me. You're way more traveled than I am. I, I Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, outside of the U.S.? Huh, no. Okay, so, like I said, I will... Add the coordinates to the show notes and those photos. It's uh, There's not really a, a good way to navigate it on Google Earth. You can just kind of see where it is. There's like a view from the bend in the river that it's located at that kind of faces it. So I'll put a screenshot of that. 
Yeah, we need to get some more drones flying over this area. Right? Yeah. Really scouted Come on out. Google Earth. Get with the program. <laughs> but I'll, um, I'll try to remember to include the kanji for the different words, too, mm-hmm. on the website, so you can do more Googling if you want. Okay, so version number four. Uh, this is the version of the Kashkubuchi tale that I found in an anthology of translated Japanese folktales. Quote, Once upon a time, when a man was fishing at the pond in Hanganyama in the summer... He caught an unusual number of fish. The day was hot, and he took his sandals, took off his sandals to soak his feet in the pond. A water spider came from across the water somewhere and fastened its thread onto one of the man's big toes. It soon came back a second time and fastened another thread on the same toe. Hmm. The man thought it strange. Yeah. As you would. <laughs> he unfastened the thread on his toe quietly and wound it around a willow stump that was beside him. Presently, someone shouted from the bottom of the pond, Jiro, Tero, all of you come here. All the fish in the man's basket jumped out and got away, much to his surprise. Like, same, right? Yeah. <laughs> Random fish jumping out of your basket. Then a lot of voices called, Ento and Yarasa, and the spider's thread began to be pulled. While the man looked on, the thick stump was broken off its base. From that time to even this day, nobody has ever gone alone to fish at that pond again. Unquote. And that's by Yanagita Kaneo, who we talked about way at the beginning of this episode. Mm-hmm. There's another tale about an eel woman and a man named uh, Genbi, but the Jorugumo is more of an auxiliary character in that. Mm-hmm. She's, uh, she's like a threat to the eel woman, so we're just not going to go into it. Okay, so two Edo period writings are often referenced in connection to the Jorogumo. They're short, so I'll just kind of quickly read what I found. All right. Tonoi Gusa, which is known as things that ought to be pondered even in urgent times, which is kind of awesome. Okay. Uh, relates the story of a young woman appearing to be about 19 to 20 years old, who appears to a youthful warrior, a samurai. She tells the child she carries... Him there surely is your father. Go forth and be embraced. The warrior sees through her ploy, and realizing she is a yokai, he strikes her with his sword, making her flee to the attic. The next day, they find a dead Jorogumo in the attic, along with numerous bodies of people the Jorogumo had devoured. Oh. Mm, I know. Macabre and spooky all at once. <laughs> it is. My favorite kind. <laughs> okay, and then the, the very last tale is called Taiheheya Kumono Gartare. Okay. I'll take your word for <laughs> like it. Like I said, I apologize to anybody that speaks Japanese. But basically, this translates to, or something like that, to how Mogoruko was deceived by a Jorokumo. And it relates the story of Magoroku dozing in his veranda in Takata... Sakoshu Okayama Prefecture. Yes, okay. We got there. Okay. We're good. As he was about to doze off, a woman in her 50s appeared. She said that her daughter had taken a fancy to Sogoruku and invited him to her estate. There, a 16 to 17 year old girl asked him to marry her. Already married, he declined. Oh, yeah. <laughs> good for him. Um, but the girl persisted. She claimed that he had almost killed her mother two days before, and yet she still visited him, and surely he could not let her feelings come to nothing. Bewildered, Magaruko fled. 
The house disappeared as he ran, and he found himself back on his own porch. Magaruku's wife then assured him that he had been sleeping on the veranda the whole time. Hmm. Concluding it was only a dream, Magaroku looked around and noticed a small Jorah spider that had made a tight web around the eaves. Relieved, he recalled how he drove away a spider two days before. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> uh, yes, he, he recalls back to that one time when he was proud and wicked, and, and surely that can't be the reason for whatever's happening now. Must not be. Of course. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so that's the end of my tales. We're going to have some awesome pictures of artist interpretations of the Jorogumo on our website. Mm-hmm. You can also just Google image search Jorogumo. I'll spell it for you. If you can't look at the title of this episode, <laughs> it's J-O-R-O-G-U-M-O. Um, and it's going to return some awesome results. There's such cool stuff out there. Yeah, take a walk on it. that Google image search wild side. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I did want to talk about some of the places that the Jorogumo is, is in popular culture. Okay. Stuff that we might be familiar with. Some of these are like a version of a Jorogumo or a half spider, half woman, mm-hmm. whatever, right? Um, so some like TV series and movies, there's one called Escape the Night, which I think is the YouTube series. And she's in season two, episode three. There's a version in Hellboy, Sword of Storms, which is an animated Hellboy movie. There is a Jorogumo in Grimm, the TV show Grimm. I, uh, yeah. Season one, episode 11. There is uh, Rosario plus Vampire. I don't exactly know how to say that, right? It's just a Not familiar with it either. Anime. Okay. It's an anime and a manga, but it's in episode 11 of the anime. So some video games. Neo, mm-hmm. which if you are into yokai and Japanese creatures... Neo is basically like um, the Japanese version of like Dark Souls. Oh, okay. Kind of. It's super cool. I highly recommend Sounds it. Sounds like it, yeah. Yeah, it's really cool. Um, Okami, which mm-hmm. is a gorgeous game. Uh, the Evil Within, Diablo 3, which is Zendaya. There's like a uh, half spider, half woman in that. Yeah. Um, Dark Souls, there's the twin Spider Woman. I don't know if you played Dark Souls, but. No, that one I haven't, no. Um, it's uh, Quaylog and Quaylana. I think you like kill one and then talk to another or something. Oh, okay. Brothers, A Tale of Two Sons, which I think is a PC game. And then Fantasy Star Online 2. Um, some short stories and books are Magic Dreams by Alona Andrews. It's a short story. It's actually a wife-husband pair of mm-hmm. authors. But they have written some really awesome urban fantasy books that I love. There's one called The Spider by Hans Heinz Ewers. There's one called Tattoo by Junishiro Tanezake. Okay. One called Darkness Unmasked by Carrie Arthur. And there's one that's XXXHolic, but I think it's supposed to just be said holics because like the X's are multipliers, I Hmm. guess, according to the internet. Okay. So who knows? (laughs) Games, Yu-Gi-Oh, Pathfinder. Um, I think it's in the third beast area of Pathfinder. Yeah. So, it's very prevalent. It's around. It's something culture. that you'll get some mm-hmm. results if you go out looking for the Jorogumo. Exactly. So, like we talked about earlier, we kind of were going to go more into the role of women in the Edo period. Okay. And why she's called the horse spider, right? 
So I did some digging, but unfortunately, a lot of the info that I found on gender roles and sex work in the Edo period seems to be conflicting in like some way or another. So it happens when only one side of things writes, writes things down. <laughs> right. yeah. When we write stuff way later and mm-hmm. everything was written by males, yes. Um, so uh, I don't think everything was, but <laughs> enough. Uh, but I'll, I'll just briefly touch on a couple of points, but I'm not going to go hugely into depth on okay. their role. So Japan used to be a matriarchal society. Which I didn't know, but that's pretty cool. Uh, But when Confucian ideas flooded in from China around the 15th century, their ability to hold power kind of eroded. Mm. And women became subservient. Uh, Japanese women's role in society during the Edo period was to be a loyal wife, housemaid, consistent producer of children. Which was actually pretty dangerous at that time. You could easily die in childbirth. Um they didn't really have a choice in who or when they would marry. Many weren't allowed to an education. Um, occasionally, the daughters of samurais would receive like restricted education. They learned how to read and write, basically, to kind of run a household. But that's really all. Okay. Um, they were to bear and raise children and keep the house clean and in order. That's that was the role really of women a, those yeah. days, right? So... This is pure conjecture on my part, but I think that the concept of the Jorgumo, the whore spider, Mm -hmm. stemmed from the relative freedom that men in the Edo period perceived courtesans as having. Their wives and often their daughters fell into this expected and restricting gender role, uh, while courtesans were essentially women with jobs, right, that didn't answer to a man. This is me just kind of assuming here, but that was pretty... Probably a little bit frightening for a male in that era. While most courtesans were outside the typical gender roles of that society, they usually didn't have a choice in the matter, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, often they were born into poor families in rural areas and they were sold to brothels around the age of seven or eight. And families did this because if the girls did well, it would increase the family's social standing and their wealth. So families would typically typically broker like 10-year contracts with the brothel owner that the girls would have to work off and basically never did because they were charged for literally everything. Yeah. Their food, their clothes. Indentured servitude kind es- of thing. Essentially, yeah. So when the girls were young, they would do like daily chores and assist the older women, all while they learned how to do things like how to manipulate someone with their words, how to write love letters, and how to cry on cue. <laughs> Using a bit of alum hidden in their collars. I had no idea what alum was. So, according to Google, it is a colorless astringent compound that is hydrated doubled sulfate of aluminum and potassium. Okay. So, if she did well learning all these skills, around 10 or 11, she'd receive further elite training, uh, such as adequate singing, playing instruments, dancing, writing poetry, calligraphy games... And, like, a tea ceremony. Mm-hmm. Um, how good they became at all of this would determine their standing in the courtesan hierarchy, which was very catty. I'm sure. Just saying. <laughs> like, it, how much space they had in the brothel and how fancy their clothes would be. And then, uh, obviously, extending beyond that, who their clients were, how much money they made, etc. Their virginity would be sold at a high price around this time. And while she was in training, her debt to the brothel only increased. Right. Um, they're charged for luxurious and expansive wardrobe, fees and tips for all of their attendants, mm-hmm. among a bunch of other stuff, kind of like we talked about earlier. The debt was such that even they would almost never 
be able to buy their freedom. And the competition inside the brothel was fierce enough to grow, like I said, catty. Um, there was a guidebook from 1660 called The Mirror of Yoshiwara, which was the, the pleasure district set up in the Shogun. Or sorry, set up by the Shogun. Mm-hmm. Um, and it kind of warned warned of like a femme fatale courtesan faking their attraction or pleasure and deceiving men into falling in love with them, which the men typically wanted to believe that these women were in love with them, right? Mm-hmm. There is a quote from a collector's weekly article that I'll post in the show notes by Laura W. Allen, and she's the curator of a of Japanese art at the Asian Art Museum. Um, and it says, quote, that was the way men were led to think about the women. They were these tricky femme fatales who could trap you. They could pretend to be in love with you, but not really be in love with you. Mirror of the Yoshiwara is fascinating to the extent that it creates an image of women who are very alluring. You really want to spend time with them, but at the same time, you need to be on your guard, which makes it all the sexier. Uh, close quote. Yeah, that's, uh, that is interesting. That that's... <laughs> I know, isn't it? <laughs> um, so in reality, most courtesans uh, died by the age of 20. Due to a toxic combination of venereal disease, unwanted children, and the like, lead makeup that they used oh, yeah. to whiten their skin, which it, is it was pretty, a hard that's knock. Pretty, oh, absolutely, <laughs> yes. Um, so this is where I think that like the myth of the Jirogumo stems from. I think it stems from evil trickster women who would make you fall in love with them. Thus, the horse spider, mm-hmm. right? And that's really all I have. Okay. Well, cool. And that's a, that's a great kind of delve into attitudes toward women that were kind of tied to this uh, this myth of the spider. That that it, it does kind of touch uh, for an intro monster uh, on something that has kind of a gendered aspect to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, these are very specifically female. Uh, uh, now, have there have there been any stories of of male Jorogumo, or do they have a male equivalent? Not in Japan Not that in I know of. Okay. I mean, there's uh, there is another arachnid yokai, mm-hmm. but they're not the same. But kind of a different kind. different thing. Yeah, I okay. can't remember what they're called right now. Um, but yes, there is another arachnid yokai. There may be multiple, but not. I don't think it's in the same way as this. I mean, it's very specifically the spider that will seduce you and kill you. And yeah, right? that's what it does. It, en- it ensnares, seduces, and traps mm-hmm. and. And these are things that have been tied to uh, a feminine aspect. Yeah. Well, all right. There we have the Jorgumo. Um, we'd be very interested to hear uh, your thoughts, listeners. Um, is there some place that uh, that we haven't looked that has a completely contradictory kind of other side to these these stories? Or is it just simply something that maybe you, you haven't heard before? Is this something new? Uh, any feedback you'd want to give, we'd be very interested to hear it. Mm-hmm. And... We are on all the social media. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Folklore on the Rocks. We're at Twitter at Folklore Rocks. Um, if you want to see more pictures, in-depth notes, you want to peek at the sources, you can go to our website, which is FolkloreOnTheRocks.com. Uh, we do have a Patreon with some really fun benefits. The best benefits. They have some really cool stuff. <laughs> and we're going to we're gonna end up with some really fun stuff on our feed, like... Logan's just going to do some random shit. Yeah, we're both a little bit all over the place, but we'll find ways to tie it back to this show. So. <laughs> and it may not tie to the show, really. It might just be fun. <laughs> but we also will have like bonus content on there. Um, maybe bloopers at some point. 
So it's it's going to be fun. So if you want to help us out a little bit with that, that's great. If you don't, that's totally fine. We are also going to be creating a merch shop with like shirts, mugs, hats, etc. Buy it all. it's, It's all good stuff. If you have any personal stories about creatures, monsters, or cryptids, even if you don't know what it was, please email them to us at stories at folkloreontherocks.com. We'd love to collect enough to eventually do a listener stories episode. Additionally, if you have any questions or comments, please email them to mail at folkloreontherocks.com. We hope you enjoyed the show, and we beg you to please rate us and leave a review on iTunes. It will help us out immensely, especially since we're first starting out. Once we hit 100 reviews, we'll do a bonus episode with a listener-selected creature. Also, please don't forget to tell your friends, as word of mouth is the best marketing a podcast can get. Thanks for listening. 